This is Bad Ideas About Writing, the podcast that counters major myths about writing instruction. It's the audio version of the open access book, Bad Ideas About Writing, which is edited by Cheryl Ball and Drew Lowy. That book features 63 chapters of opinionated, research-based statements intended to spark debate and offer a better way of teaching writing. I'm Kyle Stedman from Rockford University, and I teach writing, and I'm here to read those chapters out loud, giving you another way to access those ideas. And here we are at episode 45. Isn't this starting to feel like big and intense? We're 45 episodes. I don't know. Um, Here we are, 45 episodes in, and here's today's bad idea about writing. Grading has always made writing better. It's by Mitchell R. James. To grade is a hell of a weapon. It may not rest on your hip, potent and rigid like a cop's gun, but in the long run, it's more powerful. Larry Charks. There are a number of problems surrounding the ubiquitous practice of grading student writing. In Schools Without Failure, William Glasser notes that grading tends to be perceived by students as various levels of failure. In addition, Marie Wilson argues that a focus on failure leads teachers to approach student writing in search of deficiencies instead of strengths, which puts students in a state of preventative or corrective mindsets when trying to learn. These mindsets are especially troubling for students in writing classes, where errors must be made in order for students to grow and develop. Another problem with grading, Brian Hewitt notes in Re-Articulating Writing Assessment for Teaching and Learning, is that it rarely communicates anything of value to students. When I take a narrative that a student has written in one of my courses, something that has evolved through several drafts and has greatly improved, and I tell that student the paper is an 85%, what am I saying? 85% of what? Am I saying the narrative is in the top 85% of the class? The top 85% of narratives written by all college freshmen in the U.S. or the top 85% of all the narratives I've ever read. Or maybe I'm comparing what was executed in the narrative to a rubric, and I'm suggesting the student met 85% of the objectives on the rubric, such as effective dialogue, strong verbs, and detailed description. But might a narrative that uses all three objectives still be a poorly written narrative? The breakdown of communication inherent in this kind of summative-only, end-of-the-paper project grading is a grave issue. As a case in point, Liesl K. O'Hagan and colleagues demonstrate the lack of useful information gleaned by students when grading is implemented in a classroom. As a part of the study, one student wrote, I don't even understand what the grade means on my paper. The top says something like a B, and then all the comments say positive things, and then there are all these errors marked. Then the person next to me wrote only half as much as I did and has even more errors marked, and he got an A. It just doesn't make any sense to me. So why are we still so dependent on grading? The simplest answer is growth in student numbers. Education used to be only for the wealthy and privileged. That changed at the start of the 20th century and continues through our present time with such acts as mandatory attendance laws, the GI Bill, and the growth of open enrollment colleges. 
As student numbers and diversity rose in the classroom, the models of grading we use today came to fruition, and those that have been used before were relegated to near obscurity. However, it might be in the past where we can find the answers to the present question. If grading writing is counterproductive, what else can we do? The grading process in place before the late 19th century hinged more on direct contact between student work, course content, the student, and the teacher. For example, in English classes, teachers would respond to student writing in both written and spoken form. There were many levels of communication between the student and teacher, which provided more opportunity for the student to gain an understanding and command of course content. In addition, a student's success depended on demonstrating the skills taught. If students could demonstrate the necessary skills, reading, writing, or speaking, then, and only then, did they pass the course. This more attentive and interactive approach is akin to what occurs in assessment. Assessment and grading are not synonymous. Grading is a silent, one-way evaluation, where a teacher assigns a letter rife with a set of sociocultural significances to a piece of student writing. Assessment, on the other hand, provides the opportunity for two kinds of evaluation, formative and summative. Formative evaluation, done typically by responding to in-process student writing several times during the semester, replaces the punishment or praise of student learning, typically demonstrated through grading the final product or test with a process that encourages communication as a part of learning. When using formative evaluation, teachers and students speak with one another often. In addition, Formative evaluation creates safe spaces for student learning because students are not focused on trying to avoid failure, but instead are searching for insight and growth. As grades lose their power, the desire to evade punishment or failure can dissolve into the desire to seek knowledge and learn something new. Finally, because of the communicative nature of formative evaluation, students develop the capacity to talk about and, in some instances, even teach the material themselves as they work with their peers to explain what they know. Summative evaluation follows extensive formative evaluation. Summative evaluation is superior to grading because it assesses a student's ability to meet a priori criteria without the use of a letter grade. Summative evaluation methods, such as student self-reflection on the learning process, ungraded portfolio assessment, and contract grading, all provide the opportunity for teachers to assess and respond to student learning free of the socio-political, socio-economic letter grade. Unfortunately, like most teachers, I have to provide grades in the summative sense. If I don't submit a letter grade at the end of a semester, I will not have a job. But providing end-of-semester grades doesn't preclude providing formative assessment that can help students revise a text or project so they will better understand why they might receive an 85% as a final grade. If I had a choice by my institution whether to provide summative grades, however, I wouldn't do it again. In short, the enterprise of grading student writing should be replaced by a combination of formative and summative evaluation. Further reading. 
To learn more about grading, assessment, and higher education, read Stephen Chudy's Alternatives to Grading Student Writing, Brian Hewitt's Re-Articulating Writing Assessment, and William Glasser's Schools Without Failure. If looking for the most contemporary material on the subject of grading and education, consult the work of Mark Barnes, who has published a number of books, such as Assessment 3.0, and has an intriguing TED Talk on the need to eliminate grading altogether. Carnegie Mellon University's Assess Teaching and Learning website also contains informative definitions for and practices of assessment techniques. Keywords. Assessment formative assessment, grading, grading alternatives, summative assessment. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. just heard the bad idea about writing, grading has always made writing better. And it's by Mitchell R. James, who in 2020 sent me this updated bio. Mitch is a professor of composition and literature at Lakeland Community College in Kirtland, Ohio, and is the managing editor at Great Lakes Review. You can hear Mitch's latest fiction at Flash Fiction Magazine and Scissors and Spackle, poetry at Podunk Review and Southern Florida Poetry Journal, and scholarship at Journal of Creative Writing Studies. Find more of his work at MitchJamesAuthor.com and follow him on Twitter at MRJames5527 and Facebook at Perhupsus, that's P-E-R-H-U-P-S-O-U-S. The podcast version of Bad Ideas About Writing is produced and narrated by me, and it's hosted at Anchor.fm. The theme music is Parade by Nocturnum, and the open access book Bad Ideas About Writing was first published way back in 2017 by the West Virginia University Libraries and the Digital Publishing Institute there. It's available online at their website for free and a bunch of other websites. That's where you should go if you'd like to read a print version of this chapter, and you should. Both the podcast and the book are published under Creative Commons Attribution 4.0 International Licenses, which means you may freely distribute and remix them as long as you attribute the authors. Thanks to Cheryl Ball and Drew Lowy, the editors of this awesome collection, and to all the authors who shared their work. I'm Kyle Stedman. I'm on Twitter at KStedman, and I live in Rockford, Illinois, where I guess I should have picked this giant zucchini way a long time ago, and now I have not one, but many giant zucchini, and I'm trying to figure out what to do with it. Let me know if you have any ideas. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.